This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Caitlin Atkinson is a photographer of places, spaces, and all things botanical. A childhood spent in the Sierra Nevada foothills, among trees, mountains, and rivers, instilled in her a love of the natural world from an early age. She is the author and photographer of Plant Craft, and has been the photographer of several other books, including Dry Gardens, written by Daniel Nolan, and Designing with Palms, written by Jason Deweese. Her insightful photography can regularly be seen in Martha Stewart Living, Better Homes and Gardens, Dwell, and Sunset Magazines. When she is not busy photographing gardens, you can find her digging in her own patch of dirt. For the past two-plus years, Caitlin, you and I have been engaged in working together on a new book entitled Under Western Skies, Visionary Gardens from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Coast, which publishes on May 11th. Congratulations, and I am so glad to have you with me today to share more about this project which you conceived. Yeah, thank you. Under Western Skies, Visionary Gardens from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Coast is about the places and people that make up the West and the gardens they have created, but it's also about the story of gardeners and people everywhere, featuring a diverse range of beautiful gardens, everything from public spaces to small front yards to hilltop estates. Under Western Skies is about where we are at and where we are headed in gardening, with stories about plants, habitat, community, history, and place. The inspiration for Under Western Skies came out of my love of and connection to the West, to the land and the spirit of the place. I wanted to create a book about the gardens that are being crafted by individuals through the act of gardening, about gardeners tending the land, building the soil, and connecting to the place in which they live. I can't say exactly what unites the West. I could tell you it's about the creative adventurous spirit of the people or the rugged beauty of the place, But really what it's about for me is a feeling of being home, at home on the land. And there is nothing we need more right now than to have a place we can call home. Through the process of making this book, my belief in what a garden can and should be has continued to expand. And I hope that Under Western Skies can do the same for you. I hope you feel some of the awe and inspiration in these pages that I felt while in these gardens. Through Under Western Skies, I am sharing my love of the West and hope for the future. Together, slowly, we can rebuild our connection to who we are, to each other, and to the earth. I just cannot agree more with those statements and this kind of importance and emphasis in our gardens and places wherever they might be at this moment in time. And it's this sort of mission, heartfelt mission on your part that really um, prompted me and compelled me to to be involved in, in your vision for this project. Before we get further into the book and the process of the book, I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about... Um, your evolution as a gardener and a photographer of gardens and landscapes by going back to the the people and the places and the plants that grew you into a woman for whom this would be 
passion, mission work. And maybe start with, you know, where you were born and uh, who who initially brought the idea of gardens or wild spaces into your life, Caitlin. Yeah, so I grew up in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada um, mountain range in California, in, outside of Nevada City, California. And um, my parents were kind of back to the land. Um, they weren't hippies, but it was definitely a hippie community. And it it's not even quite a town. It's just more kind of a group of people um, living slightly alternative lifestyles. Um, so, so I was surrounded by wild land. Um, I was near a river and um, it's, it's kind of rocks and ponderosa pine, California black oak and some canyon oak and a little bit of blue oak and gray pine and then manzanita and ceanothus and just, just all the plants you would imagine. And then just as a kid, I spent most of my time outside. Um, we, we didn't have a very large house. We had an outhouse. We had a, you know, it was very rustic. And so I spent most of my time outside and my parents, um, of course, you know, had a huge garden and they had animals and they made their own bread and cheese and everything. So it was sort of um, a very holistic um, childhood. And so Mostly I, I was either in the garden with my mom a little, and then I spent a lot of time just running around and, um, or doing, you know, watercolor or reading under a tree. And so uh, after growing up in that area, um, I went to college at the California College of Arts, which is an art school in the Bay Area. And I studied photography. And then I, moved on and I did not go to graduate school. Instead, I decided to assist a lot of different photographers in the commercial photography world. And I also was pursuing my own arts career on the side, but I, I mostly just kind of explored what type of photography I might like to do for a profession and also um, just continued to um, expand my own knowledge on the side. Mm -hmm. I know you are a gardener. I know you have an artistic bent, uh, whether it is the watercolors or crafting or the way you, you handle your photography. What compelled you towards photography in the beginning? You know, I'm not exactly, that's a, it's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. I think I'm not sure, but uh, there's something to both, you know, I would say both photography and garden making that isn't necessarily art. I mean, it can be art for like art for art, but it, a, a lot of photography is more mm -hmm. craft. Um, just like, you know, pottery would be craft. Uh, it has like some practical application. So like what I do, you know, it's, it's kind of like documenting other people's work. So it's about composition, color, form, light, and space, but it's also just in some ways a practical application of an art as opposed to um, straight art. I mean, photography can be art, but you yeah. know, in this case, what I'm doing is not. And so I think, I think it was just somewhat of a practical, like it is something 
that you could do. Although I, I know I did study it as an art, but yeah, I think yeah. that's part of it. And then at what point in this process, once you decided to focus on photography, at what point did you decide or move into the realm of saying, okay, I am going to be photographing gardens and landscapes. Like that is the photography I'm going to be doing. Well, um, I, I had been assisting Marion Brenner, who's a well-known landscape and garden photographer in the Bay area. And I really loved it. And I had already loved gardens and been kind of somewhat involved in the plant world. And so it was just a great combination of a skill and a interest. And it kind of combined a number of different worlds for me. So I gradually started doing a little on my own, but it was a very slow process. Yeah, it is. I think for most other photographers that I know, it is a long and, and pretty arduous apprenticeship learning how to do this. And then the actual work of it is, is grueling. Can you describe, I don't know, your experience in training and, and what a day in the life of a landscape photographer is? I think people sometimes don't know the, the gritty details of it, Caitlin. Sure. So First, in terms of training, I think actually, I think everything that I had done previously contributed to it. Because no matter what um, kind of composition you're making, and this is like whether you're painting, whether you're creating a garden, it's kind of all about the same things, right? It's about composition, color, light, form, and space. And so I think even when I was in college and, you know, my work was something totally different. I, I was working with a four by five camera. And so you really have to consider your composition and your light because you know what a four by five camera is like that old school camera where you, you get under the cloth and you're adjusting like everything um, and it's reversed and it's on a big four by five sheet of film. So each sheet of film is one picture. And so if you don't get everything right, it's like a, it's a huge, huge deal. So I think really, the training for any type of photography, it can start anywhere, but I was photographing spaces. And so that sort of translated in some way, because really when you're looking at a garden, um, when you're photographing a garden, just like when you're photographing people, you want that light to be flattering for the objects. And so with plants, what that means is if the sun is too harsh, all the textures that are in a plant, you can't really see them. So part of it is about seeing the texture of the actual materials. And, and then part of it is about the spatial composition and allowing the viewer to enter that space and also then allowing your eye to move around that space. And then also showing what, how that space functions in some way, if possible. But um, in terms of the daily practice, what that usually means in terms of light, especially in California, and this isn't true across the country, but in California, the light can get very harsh, very quickly. So it actually means that what you're doing is photographing usually incredibly early and incredibly late. And then now that everything's digital, what you do is you spend the middle part of the day working, you know, downloading the files and then working on the files in post-production and through different programs. Um, but what it means is that you get up, you know, 
prior to dawn. And then in the summer, that means your hours are incredibly early and incredibly <laughs> late. And, so, yeah. and, and the more north you move, the earlier and later that gets. So right. you're, if you're shooting in Vancouver, your sunrise time is incredibly early and your sunset is way later. So yeah, in general, I mean, when it gets really busy, I end up scheduling a lot of days where I have shoots both morning and night, day after day. But in general, if you do that at some point, like you just end up never having enough sleep. So I try not to do that endlessly, but um, occasionally it'll happen. How long have you been at this now, Caitlin? At actually photographing gardens? Yeah. Like I probably started um, with that with the air plant book was that 2000 and it was probably, it's probably less than 10 years that I've been actually photographing. I mean, I probably, I probably assisted for a quite a lot longer than I photographed. Uh, yeah. When did, when did you first start apprenticing with, uh, and assisting with, uh, Marion Brenner or other photographers? It was definitely in the two thousands. Um, I finished school up probably in 2004, I want to say. And and you have talked to me before, and I think this, this bears exploring a little bit because the, your years of training at school and then as an assistant, that one of the one of the real skills you took away was critical thinking and critical seeing of a space that you are about to be working with or in. Can you talk a little bit about that, Caitlin? Yeah. So, well, like, like I was saying before, like in terms of um, when I'm photographing, you kind of get in the zone and you're creating. But I think one of the things that can happen when, when it's, when it is such a visual uh, medium, it can be all about, you know, the beauty, like when you're creating a garden, you can see it as just creating something beautiful. But, but I think the real power of our, our minds and our ability to transform the places in which we live and the things which we are contributing to, to the greater, greater world is in thinking about how, what we are, what we are making, whether it be the photograph or the garden, how it, how it fits into the larger picture and how, what, what we're really trying to, what we're, what we're saying with that. And, and, and also like how it, how it interacts with all of the, you know, different elements. And to some extent it's hard because, you know, if you're just starting out or you're just, like if you're just starting out in photography, really it's it, it's hard for it to be about anything more than I'm trying to make enough money to pay my rent, right? And so, so obviously initially, like you're really just trying to get a, you know, a foothold in something. And, but I think at, at this point, like I, and it's hard, you know, because you do, you are documenting somebody else's work, but I think, I think the power in what you share and what you, what what, how, how can, you know, really thinking about how you can move us forward, you know, because I, how I can move us forward in some way is, is really important. And I think, I think part of it is that it's hard because our culture, I mean, part of it, how, what we see as beauty is so culturally based, um, you know, and, and mm -hmm. America at large, 
the value of a garden isn't as strong here as it is some other places. And then, you know, our obsession with lawns as a cultural as a whole, and, you know, our obsession with creating like green lush spaces and how, how we can see beauty in, in our brown golden hills and how we can, how we can see beauty in, you know, the plants that are actually here or were here and how we can bring that wild element back into our landscape is important to document. And also I think it's important for us to kind of see how it fits into the larger picture of, you know, building habitat and how, how we are affecting our ecology and our, our, because gardens really are kind of the interface between the natural and developed world and how mm -hmm. we can, um, show them and encourage people to garden, even if, even if they're in a little small space or, you know, e even if they don't have any personal space, how we can, how we can move forward so that we're not separate from, and, um, how we can really use them as places of connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so all of this comes to bear on, on how you approached uh, the idea of this book, um, which at the time was unnamed, but this book about Western gardens, which over the course of your career, um, you know, as an assistant and then on your own, ha has been, I think, kind of brewing in you. And ultimately, in, in 2019 or 18, you bring a proposal to Timber Press. What is it that you're hoping to do at the time? What was your vision or your criteria for the kinds of gardens you wanted to represent in this new book? I just, uh, so I really wanted to show the gardens that I wasn't necessarily getting a chance to photograph. Um, and part of that is because people hire you to photograph gardens, um, that they have built, which means that often they're spaces that they've built for other people. And these can be beautiful spaces. And, um, but what I really wanted to focus on were individual projects where people were really working in their own spaces or with people in designing spaces and in public spaces, but really where there was some sort of connection to either the surrounding land or to what had existed before or what what was happening in the community just just where it felt like real gardens you know with real people and 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 it it meant a lot of different things i guess ultimately you know it it covered such a range of gardens but really and some of them you know are kind of more where we are at and some of the gardens are really focused on where we might be headed but i i think it was all i wanted it to all be um gardens with soul this is cultivating place Caitlin Atkinson is a photographer of places, spaces, and all things botanical. She's been my partner this past two-plus years in creating our new book, Under Western Skies, Visionary Gardens from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Coast, publishing on May 11th of 2021. Conceived by Caitlin, the book is really an expression of our shared love for the places and plants and plants people of 
the North American West, crafting garden spaces of soul. We'll be right back with more from Caitlin. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. As a gardener and a writer, I am really interested in the intersections between our gardens, the more wild natural spaces beyond our gardens from which our gardens are carved, and our prismatic cultures. I really believe that thoughtful and intentional gardens and gardeners help to address challenges as wide-ranging as climate change, habitat loss, cultural polarization, social justice, and individual and communal health and well-being. I explore this weekly here with you on Cultivating Place. I explored it very specifically in the work being done by women around the world as portrayed in the earth in her hands. And I explore these concepts even more in Under Western Skies, which celebrates innovative place-based gardens in deep and interesting relationship with the Western landscapes in which they are situated and from whom they take their most profound direction and inspiration. As I write in Under Western Skies, in some ways our gardens are oases against the wider world. They are ballast, steadying us, masking the chaos, disorder, and stress of daily life. Our gardens help us to forget the world. But in other ways, our gardens bring the world right to us and are directly inspired by the wider world's cultures, concerns, passions, and fashions. The indigenous peoples of Western North America are and were historically deliberate, conscientious, and judicious cultivators and managers of landscapes for food, utility, medicine, and ritualistic plants, as well as for water, fire, and game conservation. When Europeans first started gardening on this continent, the gesture was often one of control and an attempt to allay fears about survival in the face of so much wild. Thankfully, today many gardens of the U.S. and North American West fearlessly draw on the natural beauty of the physical places in which they exist and serve as oases for wild plants and animals too. They highlight, in fact, our commitment to the survival of these very wild things we have now come to love. A garden can be the perfect crucible for signifying, holding, and even expanding on cultural meaning, past, present, and future. We're back now to our conversation with photographer Caitlin Atkinson, who conceived of and photographed our new book, Under Western Skies. We're back to hear more about her inspiration for and experience of traveling across the North American West to document these 40 gardens which know and honor their specific places. 
you bring this concept and ultimately I am brought in as as the writer on the project and and you and I together finalized our list of gardens and our regions and of course there were parameters we had to sort of live with based on budget and time um, constraints. So, you know, for instance, we were not able to include Hawaii as part of the U.S. West. Uh, we were not able to include Alaska as part of the U.S. West. And, and those are those are big omissions. But again, you know, budget and time are, are what they are. We ultimately included about 40 total gardens in about 36 different profiles across the Southwest, the Southern California, Northern California, Pacific Northwest, and Intermountain West. As you spent this, again, arduous schedule traveling to every single garden to photograph it as thoroughly and um, specifically as you were able to do, were there particular gardens or particular moments or particular gardeners that that led you to formulate this concept of this project expanded you as a gardener, um, maybe in ways even that you hadn't foreseen? Would there be um, anecdotes that you could share with us about this experience and how it grew you as a gardener in the U.S. West? Caitlin. Um. Well, I think I'll mention two projects. Um, so one project, which I photographed, um, a woman named Kat High in Topanga has what she calls a gathering garden. And the thing is, when you go to this garden, it's not what you would consider a traditionally beautiful garden. It's, it's hard to almost see like what would be the photograph. So it's a little bit of a challenge, but what it, what it really, meant to her and why it was so important is that it's about the materials and the plants that she gathers and uses based on her um, heritage and her use of plants. And so, so it wasn't like I could photograph this amazing, you know, stunning garden. I, it was more about these materials and what she created with them um, from, you know, willow that she used to um, make baskets to mugwort, you know, that she would collect and use in, um, little, you know, dream pillows or what, you know, it was all these materials. So it wasn't, it was about making things from the garden and using them for traditional medicinal, uh, purposes as well. And other, other, um, traditional recipes. And so it was, it was a challenge to photograph, but it, it also is, part of part of the story of this book it's it's that a garden doesn't have to be you know what what you might perceive it to be you know it, it it's it's what what the person you know wants and needs from a space as well right so um and then the other the other garden which is sort of interesting in a way was the last thing i photographed which was um Cougar Annie's garden at Boat Basin. And this was it outside of um, outside of the United States. It's off of off of the coast of Vancouver on a, a very remote location. And uh, historically, it had been the garden of this woman named Cougar Annie. And she had 
settled the land and um, created a garden. And she was named Cougar Annie because of how many cougars she had killed. And so there was, and she no longer was alive. And this man had taken over the land and had, um, he had a foundation and he had opened a, like an ecological center where people could come and study the temperate rainforest. And so in a sense, uh, there were the remnants of a garden that was passed and which kind of explored the history of white settlers coming to the land and um, creating their gardens and bringing plants from elsewhere. And, and it was, it's in, in a state of somewhat ruins, but Peter maintains certain parts and kind of like, it's more like hacking things back in a way because it's a temperate rainforest. It rains so much and things grow so fast. It's, it's almost like immediately engulfed by um, plant material. And then, so, but the thing he had done, you know, was created all these walkways, like a bog walk and a walk through the ancient trees. And so it's really, it, it kind of brings to question, well, what, what is a garden, you know, is, what is a garden? And, you know, for me, the walkways through these natural environments, um, and then in combination with like the remnants of a past history, uh, were really um, moving and kind of engaging in a whole different way. I would say, you know, from my experience, and, and as I'm listening to you talk, I am reliving my you know, my spoken interviews with these people, those, those two gardens, um, Cat High is of course an elder of Hoopa descent in Southern California. And then Peter Buckland is, is, you know, a, a, a steward or a keeper or a curator actually sort of in ways of, of all of these layers of history of the, you know, pre-contact land there and the Native Americans who, who or Native Indigenous peoples, rather, who lived on that land and, and the cues that he sees of them in the landscape, then overlaid with Cougar Annie, then overlaid with years of neglect and overgrowth, and, and then him curating, you know, these different aspects of this space. And then the third one for me that begged this question of what is a garden? And, you know, why do we allow it to get stuck in one box, one rigid box of, of comprehension was the Noguchi California scenario um, space, which, which is, you know, a, a mm. smallish public space in the middle of, you know, wildly human impacted built you know urban industrial hardscape and is kind of a um you know a metaphor for California as an entire floristic province which is a, an abstraction and a and a and a distillation but so thought provoking mm -hmm. about uh, what it captures in that metaphoric space. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, from your perspective, why was it important that we had small and large, public and private, you know, homegrown, done-by-themselves garden spaces, 
uh, and relationships like Cat Highs with her gathering garden, as well as, you know, some pretty big, um, big budget showcase kinds of spaces. Why was that scope important to you, Caitlin? Well, I, I think it's partially because I think everyone, everyone can and should be able to garden and should garden. And I think sometimes like I rent. And so I think sometimes when you rent a, a, an apartment or a house, you sort of get in this mindset, like you can't, you can't garden because you'll, you're going to be leaving and you, you know, why bother putting in that investment? And, and, you know, I, I think part of it is that you can garden anywhere and it doesn't necessarily have to be like this huge, often gardening is a huge expensive enterprise and, but it doesn't have to be, it could be like you scatter some seeds, you know, outside next to the parking space you have and, and see what comes up and it could be, it, and it can be, you know, intensely involved. And, but, and I think my point is just that I wanted to include as many, I want to include as many people as possible in this um, enterprise called gardening. And it, it, I think often it gets a little, um, it can feel like you can't do it if you don't have, you know, the capital to really start a huge space. And, and it can be about so many different things, but I think all of it, like if, if we're really, and I wanted to include larger spaces too, because, and public, public spaces too, because, you know, sometimes you can't even have that little like balcony to garden on, you have nothing. And a public space provides, provides a spot for someone who doesn't have their own space to go, but it also provides a point of engagement for someone who may not have previously been exposed to um, gardening. And it also, you know, provides a point of, of education and learning. And so you can, you know, further your own knowledge and get ideas from, you know, from what, what they're doing it in that public space for an area in which you live in. Right. Right. And, you know, that uh, that certainly, as you're speaking about the public spaces and the importance of them as both um, green spaces for people to visit, but also these access points for knowledge and familiarity and, um, you know, examples of how we use plants from our areas or, or how we care for them. Like the Natural History Museum of L.A. Uh, County, uh, down in the LA area, and then the Desert Botanic Garden in Phoenix are, are both fantastic, and the Red Butte Garden up in Salt Lake, really great examples of all of this, and the Idaho Botanical Garden in Boise. Now I'm just keeping thinking of them all, Caitlin. Right, right. <laughs> um, but oh. what was what was interesting to me about these was the way the let me see the the kind of gravity and earnestness with which these botanic gardens really approached their work of collecting and approached their work of engaging with their public to kind of cultivate more thoughtful gardeners and more knowledgeable plants people. And and that I really felt uh, so. I felt very moved by that. The the integrity and the um, range of mission in these gardens, and 
this brings up a caveat that I think we should mention, and, and that is that one of our parameters was that we were asked to not include gardens that had already been really well documented or published. And so there are gardens that you might expect to see in this book that aren't there. The Denver Botanic Garden and its like leadership example in, in the U.S. West stands out, as does Lotus Land or the Ruth Bancroft Garden. But those are gardens that are already within the collective imagination of Western gardeners. And so this was hoping to expand that that group and those voices to some extent. Um, as you look back on this process, because for you it's, you know, it's kind of been a project, not even kind of, it has been a project germinating and establishing itself in your life for you know, the whole time you've been at this work. Are there gardens you wish were there that um, that aren't? And perhaps, you know, a corollary to that is, are there gardens you are really excited for readers and, and lookers, viewers to experience uh, for the first time? Um. That's a big, uh, big question. Um, I, you know, I mean, I, I think there's always that uh, feeling when after you finish something where like, like you think, oh, I could, I wish I could have included this or I just, you know, saw something that was really amazing and it would have been a lovely addition. But, but I think that's, that's the point. I think the point is that this is a starting point to a conversation. Um, and I think it's about, where we're moving. And I think it's just a starting point. So I, I don't, I, I'm not regretful that something isn't in the book. I think, um, mm -hmm. it's just, we can expand from the book and, and move, move forward and, you know, continue to see more. And I think, I think in terms of gardens that I'm excited for people to see, well, I, I mean, not all of the gardens in the book are open to the public. But I mean, I mean, see uh, in the book. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. I, well, I think, I think I, I'm excited that we were able to include part of Texas. We included, um, Marfa, Texas in the book, um, which is, I think a lovely addition because I do think Texas is part of the West. And so I'll, I'll mention, um, we included the home of Jim and Jim, um, and Jim Martinez is a soil science, um, soil scientist and garden designer, but they have a lovely little, little yard, uh, in, in Marfa. And it's a flat lot where they're doing a lot of, a lot of natives from, uh, that region. And, um, I think it's a great example of, of where we can go and it's still a young garden, but it's beautiful. And I, I think I'm excited about each region in a totally different way. And mm -hmm, I, I just mm -hmm. think, and I think part of it is that it gives, um, it gives our audience a way to see all these different regions. And I think if you look at it by region, even though each region isn't necessarily like all the same, I think it gives a taste of the areas that we covered. And, 
it gives a way to explore, you know, something that might be slightly different from your own region. And then also within whatever area you might live in, it, it might give you a way to expand your own uh, idea of what you might be able to do in your garden. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, as you say that about the, um, the inspiration or, um, you know, excitement you felt about each different region. I, I definitely experienced that from the writing side and interviewing side as well. And I sort of worked on them by region, really. And one of the things that strikes me is the 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 joy of your initial parameter that any garden included had to, you know, the the, the person whose garden it was had to be actively engaged in the gardening of it and the plantsmanship um, of, or plantswomanship, to say that in a non-gendered way, I guess. No, that's both are gendered. You know what I mean. Yes. Um, Plant person. The plant knowledge and skill and depth of relationship of these gardeners to the plants of their individual regions was mind-blowing to me. And, you know, and, and that I, I was thinking that as you were describing Jim and Jim's garden in Marfa and their love of hiking and birding and then, you know, collecting seed or f- sourcing native plants from that specific desert and making sure they were adapted to, you know, the, the really dry environment and then that flush of moisture with the monsoon in the summer was just, I mean, I learned about plants I'd never heard of and I've lived in the West my whole life and, and been engaged with plants. And so, you know, I found myself in each section that I was in being like, and then I want to have that plant. And then I want to have that one. And I want to grow that one. And I want to go see this one in the wild. Um, and, and you, of course, got to visit each of these gardens. But yeah, I, I had that experience in every section. <laughs> this is Cultivating Place. Photographer Caitlin Atkinson has in many ways spent her life learning to look critically and thoughtfully at the landscapes and gardens of the North American West, revealing through images the stories they hold and tell. Our new book, Under Western Skies, Visionary Gardens from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Coast, was conceived by Caitlin as an expression of, and a plea for, her love of the places and plants and plants people of the West, crafting garden spaces of soul. We'll be right back for more from Caitlin. Stay with us. So thinking out loud this week, and to continue on the riff from the first podcast break, To my mind and experience, most gardens are in fact this three-part alchemy between the riches and the constraints of the natural and or cultural history of our place. The individual creativity and personality of the gardener, and finally, the gardening culture in which both the garden and the gardener exist. Each garden is a tapestry woven of these three threads, whether intentionally or subconsciously. 
In some gardens, one or more of these threads might be the thicker or thinner strand, leading to a different final effect. But there is always some particular beauty and particular lesson to be absorbed in observing how any garden's twining, animating forces are weighted and harmoniously interwoven to be in dynamic and interdependent conversation with one another. The place, the people, the plants, together make a garden. While the 40 gardens in underwestern skies are based in the North American West, in these extreme times, the extreme conditions and biodiversity of these gardens have solid lessons for gardeners everywhere on how to partner with the land, with the cultures and histories of our places. This in turn makes for more symbiotic gardens and gardeners in tune with this generous, brilliant planet and all the lives and relational systems that make her so. And that, working together, my friends, has the power to shift everything, to grow everything, including us, in a better direction. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Do these ideas resonate with you? Can you see them playing out in your own gardens? In you? I would love to hear more about this if so, and I would love to compile like-gardened stories of this nature to share here with us all. If you have thoughts, please share them with me by email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. And many, many blessings of May to you in your garden. No matter what skies you garden under, breathe deeply, be kind, and remember to grow and enjoy the joys. We're back now to our conversation with Caitlin Atkinson, gardener and landscape photographer, sharing more about her inspiration for an experience of traveling across the North American West to document 40 gardens vividly portrayed in our new book, Under Western Skies, gardens tended by gardeners, both of whom know and honor their specific places on this planet. As you think back on the, um, like the intimacy almost of being in someone's beloved garden and photographing it with them, is there, uh, are there any experiences of um, meeting these people where they were that stand out to you after the process has, has been completed? Um. Well, I think, I, I think, I think it was just, it's, it's always a lovely experience to actually be able to, to, for somebody to allow me into their home and their intimate garden space. And I, I think each one has so much to offer, but I think uh, there is one project in the Northwest that I photographed um, that has was was special in terms of um her name's Sheila Ford Richmond and Sheila um had a home garden but what what was really special about something she had done is she had taken a part of her community 
um, which was just vacant. And she had uh, taken it and with the help of Humble Roots um, and Drew Merritt, she created this little habitat garden. And, and it's kind of just in an open plot that, that other homes can look out on. But I, I think it's really, really special in the way that, you know, no one had thought to do this. And that's the kind of thing that we can all work towards doing. You know, there, there might be a little parking strip that's un, undeveloped and there might be a way in which we can engage the community uh, to come together or, and, or if the community isn't interested, maybe you have friends. And what she did was create this beautiful garden. That's a habitat garden. And it it's full of, full of native milkweed and uh, other flowers, lupin, and just a, a, a lovely little spot that other people can enjoy looking at from their homes and also hosts a number of creatures and critters and and she just kind of decided to do it one day and i mm -hmm. think that it, that was a really lovely lovely spot yeah yeah it was an incredibly um generous community impulse on her part to bring her whole you know kind of a, you know not exactly standard suburban neighborhood, but it's a, it's a suburban neighborhood, um, you know, a relatively new development. And uh, to have taken that communal, you know, quote, unquote, green space, which was just a weedy, invasive patch uh, that was driving her crazy once she finished her own home garden and its restoration specifically for the wildlife of her area, and specifically to introduce her grandson to yeah. the joys of this wildlife, right? Like mm -hmm. that that was one of the things that really struck me was the the legacy work of the elders that we uh, we interviewed and photographed in the course of the book, Cat High, Peter Buckland, Jim and Jim, and uh, and Sheila. And then, the young families that are also included. There, there was there's something very beautiful about that range of kind of raising our gardening community standards of who we garden for and and how and why we garden. Yeah, Sheila, Sheila definitely um, was of the perspective that you know the future is all about the children because they are the future, and she she really wanted to include you know the children in her life but all children and try and engage them in the natural world which they're naturally inclined to do for a number of years um and and it really was lovely to see younger families like when i went to salt lake city and photographed um the front yard garden of fritz coleman and he has he has a family a young family and uh, it, and I just photographed the front yard, which is, it's a, it's amazing when somebody, you know, transforms their front, front yard into something that is special for everyone. And mm -hmm. they're still working on their backyard, but it's more of the edible, you know, um, garden for, and the kids spend hours out there. And then also, you know, like even younger, um, in the Northwest, Evan Bean, who, who kind of transformed, uh, 
garden space for his parents, which isn't right. totally, right. you know, the opposite <laughs> take on it. Yeah. So it, it, was, it I, I, I really did want to include all, all as, as much as we could, uh, you know, a diverse range of uh, people in different stages of life. So as you, Caitlin, a, a gardener, a photographer, a daughter of a gardener, a lifelong resident of the West, as you hold this book in your hands, and, and maybe you've already said some of this, but maybe there is more you would like to add. What is your greatest joy in this accomplishment going out into the world, Caitlin? Um, well, I think, I, I think part of it is the actual physical thing, the actual book, because there's something about a real book as opposed to, you know, looking at more images online, which can be really inspiring, but there's something about the weight of an object and something you can kind of return to again and again. And um, so I think that in and of itself is, um, uh, is uh, important. And, um, and I'm, I'm, just helpful that it can inspire a new way of looking at gardening for for people in their own connection to the land. Is there anything you would like to add? Just that, yeah, not a, just a, a restatement of you know that I I I believe gardens are really at the intersection of of the man-made natural world and, and the natural world, man-made world and natural world. And that uh, I think the future of gardening lies in working with and not against nature and in building biodiversity habitat and ecological health. And I just want everybody to kind of, if they can, and I know it can be overwhelming at times, but to examine what it means to garden and what it means to be from this land and that, that ultimately everything we create and and is going back into the land. So just really kind of um, looking at the role, a gardener's role, and uh, how we can um, work with the natural process and and just be open to what what can come and to allowing a little of the wild into our own spaces. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It was an honor and a great joy to partner with you on this project, and congratulations on it going out into the world, Caitlin. You as well, Jennifer. Caitlin Atkinson is a photographer of spaces, places, and all things botanical. A childhood spent in the Sierra Nevada foothills among trees, mountains, and rivers instilled in her a love of the natural world from an early age. She is the author and photographer of several books, including most recently being the conceiver and photographer of Under Western Skies, Visionary Gardens from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Coast, publishing on May 11th, 2021 by Timber Press. When Caitlin is not busy photographing gardens, you can find her digging happily in her own patch of dirt. Join us again next week when we have the second of this two-part series celebrating the publication of Under Western Skies in conversation with landscape architect 
Christy Green of Radical Landscape Architecture based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Radical, as in the first intrepid and primary growing root of a seedling and a wordplay on the idea of advocating for fundamental or revolutionary changes in current practices, conditions, or institutions. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and the podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com. Make sure to check out this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com to see many of Caitlin's evocative and transporting images of the visionary gardens in underwestern skies, born of Caitlin's own love for these extensive ancient lands we call the North American West. You will definitely enjoy the view. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.